Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Social media, obviously, is absolutely everywhere right now. And, you know, anyone from, from a very young kid right up to my granny will have some account on some form of platform. I wanted to start by just talking about where you think the role influencers have in the health and well-being conversation, because I follow a number of people who are very, very popular and might look a certain way, but they may give health advice, specifically nutrition advice, training advice, even medical advice without any qualifications whatsoever. And I'm seeing a lot of people kind of say, yes, but I saw this on social rather than listening to tried and tested sources such as their doctor. How big a trend is this, in, in your opinion? And and if it is a big trend, how concerned are you by it? Well, I mean, I th- I, I kind of feel that you know I, I may be slightly older, so I can remember the world before the internet, uh, and and things did certainly seem to be very simple then. I feel, um, you know, it seemed to be, you know you'd sort of switch on the TV and you'd watch you know kind of early morning TV and there'd be a doctor on there and you'd listen to their advice. Uh, you go to the library, maybe get some textbooks. I remember those kind of encyclopedia things, you know, that used to have that like, A to Z of health kind of stuff yeah. uh, that you used to kind of get. Um, and then occasionally you'd have like advice and stuff in magazines, and that was pretty much all you got. So in a way, it was very simple and straightforward, and you could kind of trust that kind of medical advice pretty much that you got because it had gone through lots of various filters beforehand. It had gone through editors, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously now, things are incredibly different. And partly that is actually a good thing because, you know, it was years ago, it was hard sometimes for people to get information, particularly the information that maybe medical professionals, for whatever reason, deemed, you know, they didn't want to give out or deemed not appropriate. So kind of things like around sexual health, for example, um, you know, kind of people from different minorities and stuff would often find it quite hard to access uh, good uh, information around, uh, around health. Um, and... Certainly that has you know, been democratised, as people say. So now we've got kind of lots and lots of information. I would argue, though, we've probably got too much information now. And it's almost impossible, I think, without a medical degree, and even sometimes with a medical degree, <laughs> to negotiate your way around what is what's true, what's untrue. And actually, I think there's a whole grey area, which is what makes things even harder. That, you know, for example, I've seen on social media quite a lot references to a study whatever that might be and actually that seems it feels like it's very authentic it feels like it's trustworthy uh, and people will often use that as evidence to kind of back up their claims or what they're saying and then actually when you look at the study you know it was maybe done in mice or it's done in a, uh, a sample size of 20 or even it was you know it looks it was extensive it looks like quite a good study but when you sort of drill down in it you kind of realize well you know maybe, maybe the methodology isn't quite as good as it could have been you know, maybe there's other what we call confounding factors, other influences that might have affected the result. Now that takes a lot, firstly, a lot of time to be. It's almost impossible uh, to do that for all of the claims that you see on the internet, um, and also requires a level of kind of statistical competence that I think the average person doesn't have and shouldn't be expected to have. 
Um, and even I sometimes, you know, having done statistics, the degree level, um, even I sometimes sort of sit there and think, actually, I'm, not, I'm still not quite sure. Is that, is that real or not real? Is that true? That's, that's kind of flying in the face of everything I've ever been taught, but it sort of right. seems true. And so it becomes incredibly difficult, I think, for you know, lay members of the public to kind of to, to negotiate this new world. Um, and and I don't blame I don't blame people for kind of at all for getting kind of uh, sucked into uh, maybe sort of these slightly spurious claims, um, kind of slightly hysterical uh, kind of responses. And also, I think the doctors. I think part of the problem is that doctors have been very slow to get on board with social media. Right. And actually, the doctors we see now that tend to have a very big profile on social media tend to be incredibly junior. Right. And actually, not to criticise them, I think they have an well. That's what I'm going to criticise them. They have, they've got a very important role to play in engaging with young people. But actually, I see a lot of people, for example, claiming to be mental health experts, and you look at their CV, and they've been a doctor for two and a half years, and they've done three months of psychiatry. Right. And I think, well, actually, that's very different to say a professor of psychiatry or professor of mental health who's maybe got forty years of experience, who can kind of stand back, who's got a much uh, sort of a, a much clearer understanding of that world. Um, and I see this a lot around lots of the kind of, kind of more, slightly more contentious issues around things like obesity, around things like neurodiversity, ADHD, and so on and so on, where there's almost an encouragement, I think, from actually often from professionals um, to kind of, you know, go out and get diagnosed and so on and so on without actually appreciating maybe the complexity, the social complexity around kind of, you know, what a diagnosis might mean, the impact it's going to have on services, the, the shifts in diagnostic criteria, for example, like all these other kind of things. And actually, it's kind of done under the banner of we are going to kind of, you know, we need to break down stigma, we need to kind of push, uh, you know, people feeling more comfortable to talk about uh, mental health, actually not realising the impact that might have further down the line. And actually, some of the older doctors, there's a, a doctor, Iona Heath, there's another doctor, um, well, he's a professor, uh, Simon Wesley, a former head of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, former head of uh, the Royal Society of Medicine, incredibly eminent doctor. And he's actually said, you know, I'm actually sick of all these mental health campaigns. Because all they do is they push worried well people into seeking a pathology like a label and actually that's actually quite unhelpful it's unhelpful for them but also it's unhelpful for services that are already at breaking point and actually that takes to, to be able to take that nuanced complicated perspective takes actually that takes a good few years being on the front line of medicine understanding kind of you know all the all the complexities around diagnosis and yet then i see a lot of very junior doctors kind of saying you know we need to break that down stigma we need to kind of you know make sure that people feel they can talk about their feelings we need to get them into services and so on without realizing the impact that might have so even within the medical profession i think that the the certainly some of the more senior doctors have been very wary about getting involved in social media i think they don't really understand it they maybe there are a bit luddites they're not quite sure you know and a bit like with me uh, you know, kind of when they were younger, we didn't have the internet, uh, or certainly not as it is now. We certainly don't really understand social media and also don't really appreciate the impact it has and the power it has. Um, you know, when you think about uh, kind of, you know, say a newspaper or, uh, or even like, you know, the, 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 the news, um, if you talk to a younger person, they don't, they don't read newspapers and they don't look at, they don't watch the news. They get their news from TikTok. They get their news from Instagram and so on. Um, and actually, I think that we really, the, the sort of more senior doctors just don't really appreciate that. 
So, so even that's even within the medical profession. So is there? It sounds as though that the, both the older, more experienced doctors and, and the junior, more kind of tech savvy doctors both have a role to play in this. For instance, the experience of somebody who's been doing it for forty years who may not understand the impact that social media has on a, on a, on someone's mind. Well, that that knowledge gap can be filled by the younger doctor who's maybe grown up in in this world, right? How do you see? Again, maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, but how do you see the experience and and maybe the the younger tech savvy doctors coming together to offer a more, I guess, clear path for for people who are genuinely struggling? Well, I think so. I mean, there's definitely there's been some really good uh, kind of collaborations between. I think finally, sort of particularly during the pandemic, actually, or as a result of the pandemic, sort of bigger institutions, things like charities, the government public health bodies, the NHS, has kind of realised, you know what, actually, if you want to get sexual health messaging to a 16-year-old, you don't go on the 6 o'clock news. Yeah. You you do a TikTok about that, or you do a Snapchat, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and actually, therefore, how do you, who are these people? And so I think there's been a much more, uh, you know, who, who are these people on the platform? And I think there's been a much more... Um, uh, I would say aggressive, kind of reaching out to these people, say, actually, okay, look, this is the message we want to get across. Could you put this on your platform? And much more kind of collaborations, I think. So I think it is starting to happen, but I still think it's incredibly difficult because, well, there's two reasons. Firstly, it's very hard for the viewer to know how to differentiate between people. Who's a senior doctor? Who is being supported by, you know, who, who is giving NHS messaging and kind of, you know, well-researched, evidence-based uh, recommendations and actually you know who is has got their phd who's saying they're a doctor but actually they bought, bought their phd on the internet um and 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 so the second thing that i think is difficult is that the nature of social media is such that actually we've got very short attention spans and we have the, the social media set up really to kind of play on that yeah and the problem of that is that actually a lot of any a lot of kind of the good evidence-based messaging is quite boring it's much better. Yeah, you know, we're going to be much more engaged with something. Saying, do you know what? Stand in your head and you know, say blah blah black sheep six times, and you're going to get you know abs or whatever. We're much more. We're much more kind of engaged in kind of quirky, unusual, counterintuitive things that much more appealing to us. And someone saying, do you know what? Eat vegetables and fruit. You know, exercise regularly. So on. It's boring messaging. So the problem is, social media is is geared towards these extremes, I think. And of course, professionals, kind of doctors, nurses, dietitians, et cetera, are mainly bounded or kind of uh, uh, bound by key professional requirements. But actually, you know, if you say you're a personal trainer with experience in nutrition, you can say anything you like, really. And there's no, there's no formal body that anyone can complain to. There's no real process to kind of uh, get them to, you know, to, to kind of justify their claims. So actually the problem is, I think, it's in these gray, the, the gray areas actually tend to polarize people a lot. If someone saying that something's blatantly, obviously untrue or something's blatantly true, I think it's quite easy to differentiate. It's all of these kind of complicated gray areas that te- that tends to be, I see, where, I, I, I feel, where all of these kind of the more charlatans tend to proliferate. And it's just, it's, it's very, very difficult um, to kind of negotiate a way through that. I kind of suspect that probably in the coming years, we will see more collaborations between these big organisations and influencers. Um, and also, I suspect there will be some kind of process will have to evolve, whereby it becomes very obvious 
uh, who is to be uh, or who's accredited in some way who's to be believed um, over those who aren't. We will always get people who are making random statements, um, who are making spurious claims. It's going to be very hard to police that. But I suspect, a bit like on Twitter with the blue tick thing, there will be some kind of process where you think, do you know what, this person is, is, is accountable is accredited in some way. Um, again, I still think there'll probably be a lot of gray areas and it'll still be quite complicated, but I think that will help people uh, a bit negotiate through it. There's plenty of studies suggesting that engagement with social media is having a negative impact on, on people's health. Focusing specifically on younger people here, that seems to be where a lot of the research is, and typically young girls as well. That can kind of manifest through anxiety, through depression, uh, eating disorders or disordered eating patterns, however we want to phrase it, body dysmorphia. In your experience, are you noticing that this trend, that this the emergence of a lot of very, very unhappy young people, primarily through their engagement with, with social media platforms? Absolutely. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, I've just seen it's just skyrocketed. I mean, it's, you you cannot emphasize what it's like. You know, I, you know, I, I work on the front line of the NHS. I see patients every day. I work full time. Uh, I mean, I've just seen this shift that's happened. I would actually say probably in the last ten years really i i mean it's just been quite extraordinary and you speak to young people and actually it's quite heartbreaking they are sort of racked with anxiety they have incredibly unrealistic expectations of what life is actually like and they appear to have very limited resilience or very limited coping strategies and so i think the kind of the impact of social media has been incredibly complicated in lots of different domains I think partly it gives a false idealized view of the world firstly so people sit there and they might feel a bit miserable just because that's life like sometimes a bit rubbish um but they look online and they are just bombarded with what they appear what appears to be incredibly successful people having an amazing lives and of course it's a highly edited often often actually complete fictitious representations of someone's life but actually when you look at it you're being bombarded with it constantly even though it's perfectly normal what you're experiencing, actually, it's it, within the prism of social media, it feels as though this is very abnormal. So actually what you have is what we call the medicalization of everyday distress. So that is just everyday normal distress, which we all experience as part of life, is actually becoming medicalized because people feel this must be abnormal. Because when I look on social media, nobody else is quite like this. And even actually, even though there's kind of occasional trends around kind of, you know, like no makeup selfies and, you know, kind of like talking about, you know, people crying and so on and so on. It's very performative. It's not about the, do you know what, I feel a bit down today, but so I've just had to like, you know, watch a film. I've kind of had to pick myself up and just get on with it. It's very rarely like that. It's all either very performative around kind of the distress um, or it's this kind of, you know, uh, you know, I've, I've done really well today because I've got out of bed and so on. It, it, it feels very, in itself, still very inauthentic. And it's not really communicating that actually life is quite tough sometimes. Things are quite annoying. Most things don't go your way. The world, world does not revolve, revolve around you. You're not actually that special. Um, and I, which are all really harsh, horrible lessons. But actually the internet or the social media is completely counter to, the, the, to that um, and that messaging. So I think it's had a very profound impact on people's sense of self-worth and self-confidence and also what they feel is normal and is not normal. Um, so I think there's, that has had a massive I think that also within that is this kind of constant drip drip of you aren't good enough. 
And then that also then, which is often, it's implicit, very rarely is explicitly stated, but actually I feel that's even worse. It's that insidious kind of quiet, low level impl implying that you aren't good enough. You know, you haven't got the latest trainers and yet there's all these pictures of, you know, people shopping out and, you know, buying, opening their, you know, unboxing all their designer goods and so on. Um, you know, they're kind of getting paid tens of thousands of pounds of social media posts and actually you work in a supermarket, you know, implicitly that's just all the time you have failed. You are a failure. Actually not realising that lots of these, or some of these people actually aren't getting paid vast amounts to post on social media. Uh, that it may well be completely untrue, but also that they're a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of, of, the, of the population. Um, you know, I've had all, so, so there's all that kind of implicit complex stuff. But then there's also the more explicit thing, things like kind of the, the glamorization of eating disorders, the glamorization of self-harm, and so on, some much more explicitly damaging stuff. And then there's also what actually the nature of social media does to our mental health, which is this kind of constant, very short, sharp dopamine hits. And dopamine is one of the kind of pleasure chemicals in our brain that we are hardwired to seek out. And actually social media is what we call a highly dopaminergic uh, environment or dopaminergic behavior. It encourages that, that reward pathway to be constantly firing. So actually we get very used to constant low level hits of dopamine which actually in the real world, you don't really get very much. You have to put in a lot of investment to get the same level of, of dopamine hit. So actually we're encouraging people to spend their life more and more and more on social media, get more and more almost addicted to this kind of dopamine hit, which makes the real world seem quite boring. And I'm very worried about the impact it has on things like attention. You know, you talk to now people and they you know, they can't focus on a book. They can't, you know, cause they're so used to everything scrolling so fast. And then we wonder why rates of things like ADHD, um, are kind of skyrocketing. Um, and I, you know, we, we know that the World Health Organization puts it primarily as a dysfunction of society, ADHD, even though the pressure, the, the, if you look on social media, they kind of emphasize the, new, the, the neurological basis of it. Actually, we know it's a massive social factor. And, and I am very suspicious uh, of the kind of role that social media has in things like that. In my experience working in, in fitness media for so long, I've got to know quite a lot of, of influencers, specifically in the training and, and, and the eating or the nutrition space. And everything you've said completely resonates with me, you know, people looking up to these influencers. But having had the conversations with them, I think what, what never fails to, to surprise me is the number of these influencers who are portraying this fantastic, amazing life are struggling probably more severely with some of the things we've talked about than, than the average person watching them. There's a couple of things specifically, uh, Dr. Pemberton, I'd like to talk to you about. The first is influencers giving out nutrition advice who have eating disorders or disordered eating patterns, again, however you want to phrase it, and, and also um, specifically male fitness models with body dysmorphia and maybe gone down the performance-enhancing drugs route, claiming to be natural. Focusing first on the nutrition advice influencers and eating disorders, in your experience, is my experience of speaking to these people a rarity or is it something you're seeing more and more? I would say, I mean, a hundred percent, I would say it's actually probably, it certainly feels like it's actually the majority. Wow. Um, it's certainly not a minority. I mean, I, so I, I, for 10 years, just before the pandemic, I, I left, but for 10 years, I worked in an eating disorder service, a very specialist eating disorder service for um, very people with very severe eating disorders. And at one point we had three people who were very, very well-known, influential kind of bloggers, Instagrammy type people, um, in treatment, 
in the eating disorder service that I was working at. And actually, as professionals, as the doctors and the diet and, and, and the dietitian, we actually had to have a meeting to go, what and we're not actually sure what to do about this. Because actually, when you looked at their profiles and what they were putting out, it was very, very, very different to the reality of what we knew was actually happening. And so they were kind of saying, you know, to, to eat this, 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 and so on and so on. And they were kind of uh, taking photographs of food that they prepared. And actually what they weren't doing is showing you the kind of like six Mars bars, you know, the, the three cream cakes, et cetera, that they'd binged on and then vomited up. Right. And so it was a complete fiction, the social media um, uh, sort of posting that they put on. And actually some of the, it, was, it wasn't just the fact that some of what they were saying was in, factually incorrect, um, you know, from a scientific point of view, but actually it felt incredibly inauthentic. You had lots of, lots of particularly younger people hanging on their every word. And actually it was, the, the, I was thinking, well, like, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't normally take advice from this person. If, if they knew the history, knew what was going on, nobody would give them a platform at all. And in fact, actually, they would tell them that they shouldn't be speaking about these kind of topics because they were so unwell. And actually, we were, we, our hands were tied because of patient confidentiality and there was nothing we could do. Um, and again and again, we would try to sort of broach these subjects with these people and say, actually, you know, is this a good idea? And unfortunately, part of, part of their illness was this being relatively insightless. Um, and so we really sort of struggled to explain to them, well, actually, some of this advice isn't helpful. Uh, you know, some of it is, it, it's also portraying a very unrealistic, uh, it's giving a very real, unrealistic portrayal of what it is possible for people to eat. And you also don't even stick to it yourself. I mean, it, it's so unrealistic, even you don't stick to it. Because I guess there's, um, a, there's a couple of things there. You could, if you're being very, very sympathetic, you could argue that these people actually, if they are given good advice uh, and they're trying to help people, then, and that, maybe going through some of these these troubles themselves maybe it's coming from a good place but then as you've just said if you flip it around saying they don't really know what they're talking about they're actually giving advice that could be damaging to people who who know less about nutrition i mean i guess the concern obviously it's great you managed to treat some people but there must be an awful lot of people out there still struggling with their own eating but telling people how to eat without any education yep, absolutely and I suppose there's one thing, there's one thing somebody who is in recovery from an eating disorder, who is giving advice about their experience of that, that I would wholly recommend and, and commend. And I think that's fantastic. And it's incredibly helpful for people. It's very different before you come into treatment, having a very established platform, which is actually based on a fantasy. Um, and, and which actually, when you look through it in a more critical way, knowing the person, you can actually see elements of kind of the body dysmorphia coming through, um, the kind of unhelpful, unhealthy understandings of food groups and so on. Um, and so, I mean, and that's a very extreme example, but actually what I frequently come across things, you know, for example, clean eating and the clean eating kind of craze, which I I would I would reframe that as an eating disorder. And actually the whole clean eating, I think, movement from an eating disorder as an eating disorder specialist, it's very hard actually to distinguish some of the messaging from clean eating is it's from people with a severe eating disorder. It's very, very similar. Um, and I, and I, you know, I've spent a long time and 10 years of my career fighting against this idea of grouping foods into good and bad. And actually food is, 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 is amoral. It isn't good or bad. It's everything in, in, in balance. And actually that goes completely, you know, it's what dietitians spend a life trying to argue. And yet then you have this movement, ostensibly under a healthy movement that is actually 
propagating an incredibly unhelpful message in general, but particularly damaging if you have an underlying eating disorder or the propensity for one. When it comes to body dysmorphia, there's always been kind of pressure or, or, you know, role models to look a certain way for both men and women. I feel that that's something that's changed radically over the last 10 years in terms of a, a certain body ideal, right? So you've got Instagram being the primary focus of, of a lot of influencers looking a certain way, you know, the Love Island generation, all these guys, absolutely no one looked like that when I was 19, 20. All these guys are absolutely stacked. A lot of the girls are having work done, you know, surgeries of one sort or other procedures. I feel that body dysmorphia is something that maybe could affect more people just because we're being constantly bombarded. You need to look like this. If you don't look like this, you're never going to find a partner. You're never going to be happy. How worried are you by this trend towards this body beautiful? This And again, especially with filters and other technological tweaks that mean what you're seeing isn't even reality in the first place. Yes. The cause of concern for you, especially again, focusing on young people or maybe in their 20s, who look at themselves in the mirror each morning and go, I'm never going to be happy. Look at me. Yeah. I mean, I see this again and again. Honestly, I can't even begin to tell you how many conversations I've had with people about this. And actually, I was at, <coughs> I was at a party. I was at a dinner party um, about about two years ago. And uh, and I was sitting next to someone. Now, this is somebody, she, she was 16, 17. Her father is someone very well known in the media, you know, etc. They're sensible, financially comfortable people. She went to a really good school. She's really kind of, you know, you, you would think that she has all the resources at her disposal to be as, as, as kind of steady and stable from a mental health point of view um, as, as possible. Um, she's got two loving, caring, intelligent parents. And when I mentioned that I worked in an eating disorder clinic, she said, oh, can I, can I ask you something? And I said, yeah, sure. So she got out of her phone. And again, I'm sort of incredibly ignorant when it comes to these things, even though I've worked in eating disorders and heard about this all the time. And she just scrolled through her Instagram feed and it was mainly women in bikinis. And she was saying, can I ask, is that normal? And what she pointed to is a thing called a thigh gap. Now, a thigh gap is where at the top of women's legs, typically women's legs, there is a space, basically, you know, where their kind of, you know, vagina would be. Um, and when you wear a kind of bikini, you can see the gap between the thighs. Now, that is actually an abnormal anatomical feature. The vast, vast majority, I mean, like well over 99% of women, anatomically, the muscles just do not sit like that. But yet she was showing me all of these things. She said, look, they've all got it. Is this normal? And I had to sit there. I was literally, I was like, put the phone down. I'm telling you, this poor girl. And again, sort of like intelligent, smart young woman. And I was saying, this is not normal. This is not a normal part of anatomy. And actually most people in order to get a thigh gap would have to be severely, profoundly underweight. On a, on a dangerous level. And actually it was one of the things I worked in each sort of services you would hear again and again and again about thigh gap. And I remember the first time I ever heard this and I was thinking, I didn't even really know what a thigh gap was. And somebody was explaining it to me, one of my patients. That weekend I was in Oxford Circus and there was a billboard for a very well-known shop advertising a bikini. And I sat on, and I, I mean, it was literally as big as my head. The thigh gap was right in front of me on Oxford Circus. I thought how many, Hundreds of thousands of people are going to walk past this. Now, it's not, it's not, it wasn't being, it wasn't pointing out that it was a thigh gap, but I thought this is being presented as a normal anatomical feature, which actually is abnormal. And probably either that, that's why that woman is a model, because she has unusual anatomical features, or it was actually never existed and it was put in by some 
you know, advertising, um, you know, Photoshopper later on. And yet this is being presented again and again. And this was in a, you know, just in a high street. And I thought, my goodness. And, and that, you know, you walk past that for five seconds and it imprints into your mind. But imagine that being on social media again and again. So absolutely, it's having a really profound impact. And I, and again, I'm very annoyed with things like Love Island, I have to say. I've written a lot very critically of Love Island and the way it is, it is pushing not only a relatively vacuous representation of what it means to have relationships, to be alive in the world, etc., but also the, the hugely unrealistic body um, ideals that it, it, it insidiously puts forward as being normal. Um, you know, when you sort of what you're watching it day in and day out every evening, uh, and you see whatever you know a dozen people, and they all look in a very particular way. Of course, you're going to assume well that's what that's what nineteen, twenty, twenty-one year olds look like, even though it's absolutely not. So what what do we do? I mean, there's well, the realistic. You know, what is actually plausible, and then yours. There's your magic wand if you could wave it. What regu- regulation? What other things would happen? Can we talk quickly about where you think the best hope is? Whether or not yeah. that's involvement from you know regulations, social media platforms doing something to your dream scenario of how we we deal with this? Because as you've said, we've got a whole generation of young people being exposed to an ideal that doesn't exist. The impact that has, we've talked about ADHD, other other mental disorders, the the potential risk if this is left unchecked is severe, right? So what do we do? Well, I think in an ideal world, we just ban photoshopping and we ban filters. Easy. There <laughs> yeah. we go. And actually, I think you'd suddenly, everyone would be like, my God, <laughs> wow, is that, is that really what people look like? And be sort of really quite horrified because I think we're so used to it all the time. And although that sounds ludicrous, actually, you know, the, the mayor banned certain images on the tube. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it can happen. I mean, with that, I found that was, I had an issue with that. More because I thought, but yet you can still have men with their tops off. So you've got women, there's certain representations of women are not allowed, but yet actually it's just as insidious for men as well, if not more so, arguably. Um, and and I, it kind of annoyed me, but that at least shows that you can, that sometimes people can just come and go, do you know what, it's not doing it anymore, we're just not having it. Um, and I think that that definitely, uh, that would be my, if I had a magic wand, that's what I would do. I mean, I want to say that pragmatically, I think it would have to be about educating youngsters around the reality of all this. I think, though, that that doesn't really allow for the kind of, you know, reptilian bit of our brain that is beyond reason and kind of rationality. Um, and, you know, and it even happens to me, I'm actually not on Instagram, I'm not on social media particularly, but whenever I sort of do look through uh, people's social media profiles, and I sit, sit there and think, and I, I sit there knowing everything I know, sit there and think, oh God, like maybe I need to go to the gym a bit more. I need to do more crunches. I need to do this, this, this. It's completely ridiculous. And I know it's all, and also some of them, some of them are my friends and I know it's a fiction. I've seen them with their tops off. I've been on holiday with them. They don't look like that. I know it's a filter. I wanted to talk quickly about how we were talking about eating disorders and how it's not about food or body composition. It's about control. At the other end of the, the spectrum, if you will, with, with obesity, Quite often it's not about hunger, right? People aren't eating because they're hungry. They're eating because they're sad, they're depressed, they're anxious, social pressure, boredom. All of these other factors are contributing to people just taking on more calories than they need. Given your extensive experience in, in addiction, do you think we need to treat obesity in the same way we treat 
alcoholism or gambling or any kind of drug addiction are there a lot of parallels that maybe we're missing some opportunities to find some ways of treating people that's a really good question i mean i would say obesity is never about hunger uh because no, nobody needs needs to be obese essentially uh, you know aside from an incredibly few people who have uh, you know unusual uh, genetic or or hormonal imbalances which actually you know they can be treated separately so so actually um there is no reason ultimately from a purely biological perspective to be obese so i would say that obesity entirely is a psychological problem and actually when i when i worked in the eating disorder service um for 10 years i ran one of the the the, the service for obese patients um trying to differentiate people who were obese so would have what we call volume eating so just eat too much versus people with binge eating and actually it's a very i felt a very artificial distinction really okay. um and now if you had could if you in this country if you get a diagnosis of binge eating which is a very clearly defined kind of criteria around how you consume food so you have normal food and then you have distinct periods of binges where you feel out of control you don't do a compensatory behavior like purging like making yourself sick or over exercising um so you just have these periods where you binge on large volume and sometimes patients with quite extraordinary large volumes of food and you would be you would so if you got diagnosis of binge eating you would you would be treated psychologically and yet if you just simply didn't eat in a binge pattern but you just ate too much we would say sorry go off to weight watchers there's nothing we can do and actually it used to break my heart because i used to sit there thinking but actually you talk to these people and it's clearly they have an unhealthy relationship with food or an unhelpful relationship with food they're using food to self soothe to manage their emotions to reward themselves to do all of these things it's it's serving a psychological function and we know that simply telling people don't eat so much exercise more we know it doesn't really work now on the face of it it should work it's easy yeah because i mean it's literally it's like you know the body in many ways is complicated but actually another way that's really straightforward it's it's simply energy in and energy out and if there is a disparity between that if you're putting more energy in than you're taking out then the body stores that extra energy and it stores it like it's fat i mean it's really it's a very sort of basic straightforward principle the fact that even saying that sometimes is controversial i find i mean that's another topic <laughs> i mean it's just a biological fact and of course yes different people have different metabolisms but all that means is great you're really lucky you have to put less energy in brilliant like aren't you lucky so actually you don't have to actually eat as much it doesn't mean oh that's my excuse for being fat <laughs> it just means you just need to eat less but of course we know that it's not that straightforward that it's not that simple equation because actually what that equation doesn't allow for is the mental processes that go on in our relationship with food and so this is a thing so i would say we should absolutely just as we understand that cigarettes alcohol drugs all sorts of gambling all sorts of other behaviors are serving a, a profound psychological function that's why people do that do it uh it's serving a psychological function therefore we need to treat it psychologically i i feel like the nhs has really missed the trick and actually society in general i don't just mean in this country i mean all around uh, all around the world has failed to understand that again we have put our brains in this extraordinary situation the first time ever in human history where we have access to more calories than we actually need that is unheard of in human evolution so we put them in this so they're all and they're already because we we've spent most of our existence as as human beings 
our ancestors spent most of the time starving. Yeah. So we already have this propensity to, do you know, if there's more calories, take them on board. Actually, what we've now realized is that we put people in an environment where they have access to more calories and there's a propensity to take on more than they actually need anyway. And we've, we've surrounded food in this kind of cultural, rich cultural and social kind of milieu, which means that actually food seeks just be about energy for, some, for lots of people. And it's actually about a lot of other things. So again, you would sort of end up talking to patients who are obese and that they would, you know, when they sort of opened up to you, they would be depressed, they'd have anxiety, they'd have other mental health problems, or they'd have emotional difficulties. They'd have, you know, very profound, you know, histories of abuse and so on and so on. And there'd be many, you know, many, many, many different reasons why people were obese. But it wasn't just because they were daft and didn't realise eating cake would make them fat. Until we treat obesity in the same way we treat any other addiction, are we fundamentally flawed in our approach and we're just going to see a continuation of obesity rates, not only in adults, but also in children? Yeah, well, we, we, we know, we know that it's not working. We know, you know, the, the, the government or, you know, not just our government, governments around the world, pumping millions upon millions upon millions of pounds, billions of pounds into treating obesity and it doesn't work. Um, and actually all we see is just the rate is going up and up and up and up. So if it did work, to me, I feel it's a failed experiment. It's like, well, we tried doing this. We tried sending people off to this place and this place and this place. We tried telling them to do this. It just doesn't work. Now, of course, there are some people for whom it, that messaging, for whatever reason, does resonate and does work with them. I suspect from my experience, a significant number of those people actually have done it. Psychologically, they've shifted for whatever reason, whatever's happened. It's been a psychological shift. And then that information or that the, the, the course that they've been sent on has landed just at the right time. But we know if you take the general population, you tell them not to eat so much, to exercise more, it doesn't work. So to me, I think we need to come change the approach. And yes, I think we need to treat it maybe more as addiction. The thing that becomes maybe a bit more controversial is just as with addiction, we don't, we, 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 we treat, say, somebody who's addicted to heroin, you'd hope with kind of compassion and understanding but we also locate the problem very much in them and we say actually it's you that needs to do the work and you need to change this this is something that isn't that we understand why it's, this behavior has uh, has occurred and evolved in you but actually we're not going to pretend it's anything else we're not going to blame wider society etc ultimately even though there might be lots of complicated factors why somebody uses heroin ultimately you know when you work in drug services as i have it's quite a harsh environment. People are quite strict. Uh, you know, the, the, the drug services um, are very aware of people looking for anybody else to blame apart from themselves, the situation they're in. And again, it's difficult using words like blame, or maybe I suppose about taking responsibility for uh -huh. the situation. And one of my concerns that I've seen, I think a lot, again, with the kind of rise of social media and so on, is that there's been this kind of very bizarre shifting where on one hand, we've got incredibly skinny, unrealistic idealized versions of the body being presented and so on and so on. And that's been affecting people. But then equally, we've seen this kind of romanticization, fetishization of obese people and the obese body. And I kind of get it because it's in, it's in contrast to, it's an offset, it's yeah. very unhealthy messaging. But actually, we're not, that, that's very unhelpful. But if you're then also saying to people, actually, the reason that you are overweight is because of an unhealthy relationship with food and let's think about how we can deal with that if we've also then got a whole group of people saying you know fat is fabulous fat could be healthy etc etc again it's that very complicated messaging that's going to confuse people and also if you 
your brain is going to want to listen to the bit that's saying actually don't bother changing you're okay don't take responsibility it's all right like you're actually fine um because change is always uncomfortable and difficult um so so for me yes we need to treat it psychologically but we need to be mindful of doing it in a compassionate way but ultimately saying to people you do need to take responsibility for this and it's only you that can change it nobody else can change it for you What about, I know you've spoken before about the overdiagnosis or even the eagerness to to diagnose certain conditions such as ADHD. We've touched on, on that before. Do you feel, again, is this something you're seeing more and more, an eagerness by the medical profession to, to diagnose and, and to put people into certain camps as, I don't know, what are their motivations for that? Perhaps you could tell me. Yeah, well, I think it's coming from two things. I think it's, it's a bit, well, three things in total, which is what I think makes it complicated. So, I mean, just looking... Well, I mean, you can look at mental health, you can also look at physical health, because even we mentioned cholesterol. Um, lots of medicine is on a kind of sliding scale. So it's the syndrome, as we would call it. So, you know, if you, I don't know, if you have a heart attack, you've either have got one or you haven't. Most of medicine, though, actually doesn't quite fit like that. So what? Wh- how you decide, this, decide what is high cholesterol and what is not high cholesterol is actually a very political decision. And it's partly, you would hope, it's based on science. So we say, well, actually, if we cut off here, then we know this group of people are more likely to have a stroke, for example, than, than, than this, the people lower down with, with lower levels. But actually, then it gets very easy to say, well, actually, do you know what? There's still some people who are going to have a stroke in this category. So why don't we just move it a little bit here? And so you get this kind of creep that happens over time. Now, partly that is to do with research, but actually also partly that's to do with other lots of very complicated pressures that these bodies that tr- could decide where we draw these arbitrary lines are under governments and so on and so on so sometimes partly there's a pressure to not diagnose too many people because the the, the country couldn't afford to treat right. them if they all became pathologized <laughs> and then the problem we have is that a lot of our stuff comes from america a lot of the shift that we see come from america you know within the west where there is a very clear incentive, either lobbying groups for various reasons with self-interest or from the pharmaceutical companies. Right. So again, so we've had a number of very high-profile doctors in this country kind of saying actually part of the role of doctors really should be to push against this medicalization of things, this, oh, this what we call diagnosis creep, where, where the kind of what, what falls into the diagnostic criteria, the diagnostic category, gets changed over time again and again and again. That actually what became quite a, quite a, a niche specific illness actually becomes so big, encompassing so many different things that actually it almost becomes a bit meaningless. Now with cholesterol, we've seen and over a number of years that the, the number kind of being pushed down at what we would consider high. Oh. So actually, it, you know, it's kind of shifted to, to capture more and more people. And there's been some criticism from some doctors that actually this is because of pressures from, from pharmaceutical company, because obviously once you're on a statin, you're on a statin pretty much forever. So actually, like they're trying to get more and more customers, as it were. As it were. Um, and it's been quite controversial. I tend to be less critical of the cholesterol thing. I'm less bothered about that. They're relatively cheap, and we know that they work. From a mental health perspective, what I've been interested in is how that has happened within mental health. So we have seen, for example, autism over the last kind of 50 years. What we class as being autism has become slowly changed 
so that actually 50 years ago, the diagnostic criteria, the tick boxes, are now very, very different to what we now see. So, you know, it's now considered to be a syndrome. So now we don't tend not to use the word autism, we use autistic spectrum disorder, so it's on a spectrum. And actually there was a study that was done about two years ago that showed that if it continues, if this kind of creep continues, so we get more and more people being included, by 2030, every single person in the UK will fulfill a, the criteria for a diagnosis of autism. Wow. And I and I, when I wrote about that, there was a big backlash and everyone was very angry and said, you know, you're diminishing autism and so on. And actually, I was like, it's completely opposite. I've worked in autism services. I feel very strongly about it. And what makes me worried is that now we've come capturing more and more people in that diagnosis. Actually, there are le less and limit, more and more limited services available for the people that are profoundly, profoundly disabled by it, by which I mean they aren't able to speak or communicate effectively. They aren't able to be touched. You know, it's like really, really profoundly disabled people. Um, and of course, the difficulty is, is that the people maybe with the less extreme or less severe versions of that illness, when it's a syndrome, they tend to be the ones that are overrepresented on bodies that are, uh, you know, kind of on charities, on lobbying groups and so on and so on, because they're not profoundly disabled by it. So actually you get a very skewed view of then what that illness actually is. And we now see things like autism services being absolutely overwhelmed by patients that maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago wouldn't even have considered a diagnosis. And my concern about things like that is that, well, I think it does a number of things. My concern is that I think it removes agency for people by giving people a label. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it pathologizes them when they don't need to be pathologized. Um, and, and actually I think it, it, it diminishes human experience and the kind of variety and wonderfulness of humans uh, in all our kind of quirky weirdness and so on. Um, there are pathological categories to try and help people identify and to focus resources on people and ensure that we can research them and help them and so on and so on. And that's the other big thing that takes away a very limited resource from the people who desperately need it to function in society. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, and, and so, and, and, and I, I kind of feel that we're pathologizing, you know, the kind of human variety unnecessarily. And also there's a thing called labeling theory, which was around kind of quite a few decades ago. It's a sociological theory called labeling theory, which says when you give somebody a label, it was kind of a slightly, it was in, in the context of, there was a whole movement in sociology in the 1970s around quite anti-medicine, anti-psychiatry and anti-medicine, saying actually pathologizing normal behavior, it's pathologizing normal biology and so on and so on. And let's move away from terms like normal. Um, and so there was a whole a whole move part of this movement was a thing called labeling theory, which proposed that actually when you label somebody with something, they, their behavior changes and adapts to fit that label. And actually that is what I find very, very sad and disheartening. And I see this a lot with children that are labeled with ADHD. Suddenly, everybody around them is like, oh, well, it's their ADHD. And I think, well, actually they can still be polite. ADHD doesn't mean you're rude. ADHD doesn't mean that you kind of kick your sister. ADHD doesn't mean all this sort of, and actually it's used as a way of kind of excusing other behaviors that actually they may have the ability to change, to tailor, to moderate and so on. And also to what extent when you have a label of ADHD, do you then act up to that? And that's my concern. And again, this is a very old established kind of theory and idea and concern. And I kind of feel we've forgotten all this. And we spent a long time, kind of 70s, 80s, 90s, trying to move away from pathologizing people, away from giving people labels unnecessarily. And now it's kind of flipped back completely the other way. 
partly i think there is a lobbying element to it partly there is a very complex role with the social media about wanting to appear special these kind of things being uh, sort of held up and venerated as a way of um avoiding any you having to make any changes in some way about you um you know it's it's uh, somebody wants to describe it to me it's sort of you know it's a get out of jail free card you can then behave how you want and you can't be criticized and actually you can see on social media that that's actually really important to be able to have that because the fear of the opprobrium and the kind of you know hate that you can get on social media if you can suddenly turn back and say well you can't you can't be mean to me because xyz it's a it's a it's a reassurance mm. and so i can see that there's probably elements of that why this has happened i also quite cynically think it's doctors and psychologists who have started uh who realize that there's a lot of money to be made and actually what we've seen is we have not seen an explosion of a diagnosis of adhd and autism and all these other kind of other conditions in poorer communities we've seen it as always in the middle classes who are paying a thousand two thousand three thousand pound to a private psychologist to give them a diagnosis which means that they will be able to uh you know kind of behave in certain ways um, you know you, we've seen it we've seen very recently in the news kind of people that are being accused of certain things and they will suddenly say oh yes but i've got a diagnosis of autism or i've got a diagnosis now I, I don't know maybe they do have a genuine diagnosis but the problem is that those diagnostic criteria have been so shifted it's meaningless now when you read it it could be anything um and and, and you look inevitably they paid for private um diagnosis because again you can you can now the the, the catch the, the the way that these the diagnoses are given is so broad and they've been kind of so opened out that it's 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 almost anybody uh when you look at answer the questions almost anybody um would kind of uh, would get a diagnosis that's only how it feels so on the spectrum of being completely pessimistic to completely optimistic where's your needle in terms of how we can hold this because the reasons you've mentioned but suddenly if you if we're thinking it's big pharma and their lobbying interests it's incredibly powerful enemy to 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 yeah but well i think i actually think with something with with a lot with some of these things with things like <laughs> depression anxiety autism it she all of this stuff actually it's not simply just the pharmaceutical companies actually it's also people people want this diagnosis they want to label and actually it, it seems to come in fashions we saw about 10 years ago everybody's coming saying i think i've got bipolar they didn't want to just have depression they wanted bipolar and actually what i've noticed is that that's very much fallen out of fashion i think because people got put on the drugs and the drugs for bipolar were quite unpleasant sometimes and so suddenly people you know kind of suddenly thinking well actually i don't i'm not entirely sure maybe i could actually just manage without it so maybe i slightly overemphasized some of my symptoms and the problems i was having and we've now seen i think because there aren't medications in things like autism there are some in adhd but there aren't in autism um i think we've seen that as a as a something where people have kind of been drawn to as an understand a way of understanding or explaining actually what's incredibly difficult like life is complicated our emotional responses our internal world is incredibly difficult and so and i understand why we would want a simple straightforward label to to explain what is actually very complicated but my the, the sad thing i think about that is that actually when you have that label that's it it's almost like you know, there isn't any other further treatment particularly with actually if we were able to do a formulation where we'd say actually i think you've got lots of complicated issues let's think about this and let's spend two years doing psychotherapy and actually you might come then to a position where you could adapt and change and come to a better understanding of yourself and my concern about particularly with autism that label is it closes that down 
but the clinicians aren't going to push that. The patient doesn't want that. So what? What? That's back to my original question. Where's your yeah. needle, Where's your needle on on whether or not this is just the, the spike or the loop that we're in now, and it, we're not going to get out of it? Well, I th- I think probably what will happen, it will kind of probably burn itself out a bit. I think that there will. So I've already when you speak to when I worked in autism services, the. I I was always sort of quite cautious about talking about this and thinking about it like this because I didn't want to upset people and so on. Even though within medicine, there's a lot of this discussion. When you talk to the parents of children with profoundly disabling autism, they are furious. They feel that this illness, illness has been hijacked right. by a lot of middle-class people, basically. And they are very, very angry about it. And actually, I worked with somebody in a service um, a couple of years ago and her son... And it was heartbreaking listening to her. She was saying, you know, I've actually never been able to hug my son. And, you know, she, and uh, it was, I mean, really, really profoundly disabled, very sad. And I remember hearing her talking about some patients who'd been diagnosed recently with autism and her being furious and saying, like, how dare they try and take this label for my son? Like, they don't, they do not know what this means. You know, the fact that you, you know, might like be good at countdown and, you know, you know, dreaming code does not, it not mean you're the same as my son. Um, and, and sort of be really, she was, I was just surprised and shocked about how sort of angry she was at feeling that this label had been taken away or had been diluted in some way. Um, and used as almost like a kind of a badge of honour. Mm. Um, and I kind of feel that probably either we'll have to, you know, these, these, these individuals are in desperate need and we will have to either re-termine in some way to, in order to be able to access and identify those people to give them the, the, the intense support and help they need. Or I think it might just burn itself out and people will uh, realise that actually it kind of didn't particularly help them. But what they were looking for didn't really give them the answers, that they're still kind of a bit confused about the world. They still have thought, you know, kind of emotional difficulties with emotional regulation or engaging with people and so on. So on. And actually they end up going into psychotherapy and working on that, finding that that was the answer all along. That's what I would desperately hope. 